Hello, welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the second webinar in our July series titled Building Trust in Connected Learning Environments. I'm Ann Collier and I'm co-director of ConnectSafely.org and blog at NetFamilyNews.org and I'll be the host for today. Throughout the month, join us here on Connected Learning Network um, or Connected Learning TV, sorry as we explore some of the issues and recommendations from the recent Aspen Task Force on Learning and the Internet report, Learner at the Center of a Networked World. Today, we'll be chatting specifically about trust challenges across connected learning environments. But before we dive into our chat, let's go over just a couple of quick details. To those watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions either via the Twitter hashtag DMLTrust or hashtag connected learning, or via the Google Plus event page. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. We're also chatting throughout the month in the connected learning Google Plus community and using the same DML trust hashtag on Google Plus. So I'd like to give our guests a chance to briefly introduce themselves and we'll go from left to right. So Barry, why don't you start? Sorry, I was muted. I wasn't expecting me first. Hi, so my name is Barry Joseph. I'm the Associate Director for Digital Learning here in New York City at the American Museum of Natural History. Um, you can see my Twitter handle below if you want to follow up more about the projects we're doing here with digital learning to engage youth around informal science. Great. Please go ahead. We've got um, Carla next. Yeah, so I think we're all in different orders for each other. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Oh. I am Carla Casilli. Sorry. And I am with the Badge Alliance. For me, I'm last, but that's awesome. Um, so I am with the Badge Alliance. We are a network of organizations who are interested in developing a um, free and open source ecosystem of badges, uh, badges that will capture, digital badges that capture learning whenever and wherever they occur. And uh, we are working with a constellation model for social change. So we have a variety of working groups that we work with. And those include a variety. I won't list them all. But they include uh, workforce, higher ed, policy, research, digital and web literacies, and messaging, a whole host of different areas that we, that, of people who are interested in using and developing badges in a variety of different constituencies. We have kind of a focus on infrastructure and also a focus on ecosystem. And we are really interested in developing the idea of badges using the concept of trust networks. So this whole concept of trust is very important to the underlying and underpinning aspects of badges in general. It's going to be great to dig into that a little bit later. Carla, you're next on, no, sorry, Kathy, you're next on my screen. Hi, everyone. I'm Kathy Lewis-Long. I'm the co-founder and executive director of the Sprout Fund. We host Hive Pittsburgh, which is really um, an urban laboratory to put connected learning into action, harnessing all the assets of a community from schools to museums to libraries, online, third spaces, to offer um, a set of tools and practices and ideas for educators to engage teens in connected learning experiences. We are also one of the cities of learning and uh, working closely with uh, my colleagues on the call and specifically on badging. Great. And then we've got somebody from across the Atlantic. Doug, do you, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Absolutely. My name is Doug Belshaw. I am the Web Literacy Lead for the Mozilla Foundation. You probably know best through Firefox. I work on the WebMaker team between Newcastle on Tyne and Scotland in England, if you know geography of that area. Um, I used to be a teacher, history teacher. I was a leader in schools. I was in higher education for a bit. Um, I'm involved today is mainly through the kind of digital literacy work I did in my thesis and also um, the web literacy work that I lead at Mozilla. So if you're interested in any of that, uh, follow me at, at DAJ Belshaw on Twitter or at Webmaker um, and go to webmaker.org to see some of the stuff that we've been working on. Thanks, Doug. I think we're feeling the waves a little bit because there's a teeny bit of lag, but we I think we got almost about 95% of what we said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jade, you're up next. Um, hi, I'm Jade Davis. I am the program coordinator for the digital media and learning competition happening here at Haystack that this webinar series is a part of. Um, it is a trust challenge, and you can find out more at dmlcompetition.net. Um, in the other parts of my life, I am a teaching fellow at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a doctoral student in the, in the Department of Communication Studies. Great. Okay, thank you all very much. Let's um. Trust, what is this thing? What does this thing look like? And that we have lots of really great perspectives here today. So um, it would be really great to kind of dig in with actual examples. If you could each just sort of take turns and give us an example of what a trusted learning environment looks like. Barry, would you start? We'll kind of, maybe it's just sort of easy sure. to go in the order we started with. Absolutely. So again, to, to place my context, I'm thinking about after-school programs, um, happens to be inside a museum, um, but really much connects with a, uh, a youth development model um, that's common in many after-school settings. So it being a youth development model means in part that we're thinking about the strengths that youth bring in to the programs and how we can leverage those strengths rather than the programs being pre pre preventative. So for us, creating safety is one of the key ingredients for having an environment for youth to be able to take risks um, and try something new uh, and learn. When they come into a program at the museum, they're choosing to be here as opposed to having to be at school. So if they don't feel safe, they're not going to come back. If they don't feel safe, they're not going to want to share their, their thoughts about paleontology or, or evolutionary th uh, theory because um, they're not going to feel safe uh, taking a risk and being wrong. So it's very important for us to build relationships with the youth um, from the instructors to the youth, as well as setting up um, the expectation for the classroom to have a safe environment for each other, to respect what each other has to say, even if they don't agree, and as well as respecting each other's spaces. And those are things I think anyone working with young people in an after-school context in person, in a youth development environment, would, would be familiar with and probably is nodding their heads going, yep, of course, we, we need to do that. And without that, the learning is impossible. Thanks. Carla? So I, I think I'm very intrigued by Barry's connection of safety and trust um, because I think those two things are really nicely connected. And just building on the idea of um, using badges in general, open badges, is built on a trust concept. Uh, it's built on the idea that people will be able to recognize each other's merits and values, um, achievements and experiences. Uh, there are a lot of questions that are surrounding badges in general, and those are typically coming from formal environments, formal educational environments about how can we ensure that there's rigor or value behind the badge. Um, we tend to kind of separate the idea of, um, of value a little bit differently than I think other certification or degree programs do, um, because essentially the concept of trust needs to be developed. 
within an environment. And that concept of development is something we're very early on. It's a nascent ecosystem. And there are organizations who already carry a certain amount of trust with them. Because they carry that trust with them, there is a tacit acceptance of their sorts of acknowledgments of learning. Um, badges start to introduce lots of different questions about whether or not that tacit acceptance is something that we should really be so tacit about. Um, so the idea of trust with this, within this environment is it's a developing environment, and trust is earned over time. Trust in the value of the badges, maybe, or trust that the badges will get you somewhere? So both. I think those are really good uh, thoughts about both of them. Um, trust in the value, I think, is one of the really um, strong areas that people respond to. That said, uh, as I mentioned, the concept of tacit understanding or tacit acceptance is really important for us to th start thinking about um, because our trust is often based on things that we have absolutely no reference for, no credential, no, no actual physical thing that we can point to. What's interesting about badges is they start to introduce those things. They start to allow the concept of evidence to be associated with representations of knowledge or experience. And because they do that, then they start to impart or start at least start to point in the direction of trust that here's a, here's a credential, um, if you want to call it a credential or a micro-credential, um, a badge is really a representation of that experience that someone can then use uh, for themselves. But the idea of, of does it lead somewhere is also really important, that um, a badge, in order to be really successful and to operate in a trusted environment, needs to have a life cycle. So it needs to be issued by someone, earned by someone, and then what we call consumed by someone. And that consumption part is really where a lot of the trust questions start to arise is, well, all of the stuff that led up to here, how can I guarantee, or what's the meaning behind that, and how can I place value? So the question of how do we develop trust is, is really a, something that we are trying to dive deeply into. Okay, thanks so much. Um, Kathy, what about at Sprout? What is trust? What, give us an example of a trusted environment in Pittsburgh there? So when we begin to think about trusted environments, we think of, of similar to Barry's comments, of programs that are deeply embedded in the community, um, that are working with populations that are familiar meeting youth where they are, where they're comfortable, where they know the educator, where they want to be. Um, so really the authenticity of place um, I think of a makerspace in, in a community that we work with called Assemble. That is a storefront makerspace. It's, it knows the youth that are coming in. The youth know the educators that are there. They're really coming from a point of, of safety just in their um, experience. And then I think to build on Carla's comments, it's really how to take that sort of tacit understanding of safety and, and trust and then build in the tools and the learning experience For us, an example would be um, neighborhood-based organizations, faith-based organizations, uh, libraries, the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh and all of their branches are really great places um, that are starting with a basis of trust for the youth that are coming to those centers every day. So in some ways, you kind of have a leg up on trust, right, because of that sort of face-to-face -face physical community element. That, that might be something to come back to later, um, how you build trust in a purely digital environment or whether or not 
you really do have an advantage um, because of uh, physical spaces. Anyway, so Doug, can you give us an example in your space of uh, what a trusted learning environment looks like? I'm actually going to give my place up to Jade because I think she wanted to respond to Carla. Oh, yes, please. Thanks a lot. Oh, I can respond to Carla and Kathy, actually. Um, the example that I was going to give is um, one of tacit acceptance, um, not at Haystack, but in my role as a, a lecturer at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I'm lucky enough to teach wonderful students who have gone through the UNC system. Um, they're in their fourth year, and oftentimes they know how to do a class. Um, so one of the things that I do is I lie to them. Um, purposefully. I give them a warning at the beginning of the semester that at some point you will be trolled in this class, at some point you will be lied to in this class, and then I give out the lie. Um, it's usually something that's very easy to point out if they would use the laptops that they have open, um, but they don't say anything. I do it on a Friday, we come back on a Monday, um, I ask them if they can tell me what the lie is, and they usually can't. Um, and it turns into this conversation about um, people pointing out all the points where they realized I was probably lying. Um, the last time there was a music video and they're like, but the car model, you said this was like five years old and I know that car model that came out last year, this couldn't be right. Um, somebody was familiar with the singer that was in the music video and they're like, but that wasn't the right person, but I don't want to say anything. And everybody was scared to speak up, even though they had all of these tools in front of them to confirm what was true. And that, that was because they have this tacit acceptance of trust in the classroom. And it led to a really great conversation about why these familiar, safe spaces um, seem like spaces we can trust and why we don't use the tools that we have in terms of the internet um, and connected learning practices in, um, in the classroom at the university level. Um, and so that's the environment that I'm speaking from, which I think is very different than the other places because my students didn't grow up with youth programs that were teaching them digital literacies. Um, so that's my trust challenge with them, is empowering them to use the information they have. Jade, that's awesome. I love the fact that um, you tell them you're going to troll them and then they have to figure out when that's going to be. Uh, it reminds me of someone I know quite well called Helen Keegan, um, who works at the University of Manchester. And she basically did an ARG, an alternative reality game, with her students without the students knowing. So she used the trust that the students had in her as a teacher and then came up with a scenario. And there's a whole, if you if you search for Helen Keegan and ARG, ARG, um, there's a whole, she's done the, the talk many times and it's just really worth a watch. Um, so an alternative reality game is when you try and like distort reality so the students don't really know what's going on but they're learning new things. So the specific thing she had was she, she was finding that the students weren't reading things. Um, and so she created this other world where students were getting these mysterious videos from this person who was sending them challenges. Um, and to find out the challenges, they were having to do more and extended reading. And at the end, um, you know, she actually revealed that she was, she was part of the deception. Um, and she was cutting it quite close to the bone because, you know, some people might be sacked for such things. But I think it brings up an interesting thing from what Carla and other people have said about kind of good things happen slowly and bad things happen fast. I see this as being like a coral reef where it takes a long time for this this kind of thing to build up, but it can be destroyed really quickly. So trust is about relationships, but it's also about identity as well. So the way in which I perceive me in relation to the other um, and the way that I see myself reflected in that other person. Um, and if this other person is somebody I trust, it's usually because I see a good part of myself in that through the relationship. 
Um, and so I think when it comes to technology, what we often do with trust, and, and something which I see often when in learning management tools, is you have trust levels. And so you have trust level one, two, three, and that's usually to do with access to resources or things that you can do on that particular platform. Um, whereas actually trust isn't as binary as that, it's a lot more analog. So I just wondered whether we could discuss the that kind of fact. What are we losing when we're, we're moving notions of trust into a digital space? Um, does anybody want to respond to that question from Doug? Um, um, so I will. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Jade. Go ahead. I was going to tie it back to the competition. Um, I think that when we start moving trust to the digital, it changes what we mean by trust. There's different organizations involved. Um, there's different power dynamics being played out um, that are not obvious they, in a way that they are when we're in person. Um, so we're hoping that people will build tools that can help us understand what is different in this moment versus in the past when we were all in face-to-face -face spaces. Jay, just really quickly, you mentioned a competition. Do you want to say what you, you're talking about? Um, I'm talking about the Trust Challenge, um, which is the hashtag we're using for the webinar. Um, it's the Digital Media and Learning Competition 5, and it's looking for organizations to build tools to help us figure out trust and connected learning, um, things that make all of these complicated questions that I imagine we're going to try to tackle in this hour um, important to have. And people can enter the challenge in September, right? Yes, but the yeah. call is up now. If you go to dmlcompetition.net, um, you can see all the information about it. There's a wonderful CFP video as well. Thank you. Carla, I, I think you had a response to that, right? Um, yeah, I think the idea um, that we're starting to see, I mean, I, I, first of all, I think the, the question about binary versus analog is a really interesting yeah. concept and approach. Um, I, I, I think that's a really interesting way to describe it. Um, and, uh, and I think we're also starting to see some of that played out in the Facebook um, testing, right, the, the emotional um, evaluation where there's, there's trust placed in organizations that are online, getting to exactly what Jade was talking about, trust placed in that environment um, without any full understanding of what it means to be surrendering different aspects of your, your personal information, your personal data, um, but recognizing that there are pluses to that interaction, that there are, it connects you with different people that you may not have other access to. So there's this kind of constant balance about whether or not uh, your trust is valued at the level that you value that trust, which is a really interesting question. So what does personal ownership of trust mean and impart, um, personal impartment of trust to an organization versus an organization's view of trust? Um, so I think we're starting to get into that, that interesting dynamic of an individual perception versus a larger social perception and also kind of a, a, um, an enterprise um, perception of trust. So how do you build trust where, where you all work from your places? Um, we, we, we've talked about several different kinds. Um, we've talked about social emotional trust we've talked about you know binary or analog and digital trust you know and and we've talked about um, trusting in new systems and then there's the challenges of just a whole new medium um, you know trusting digital um, so how do you 
let, let's just sort of come back to a specific place or program. How do you build trust within that space, whether it's a classroom or it's, it's something that you're doing digitally, you know, um, the kinds of work that many of you do. But Barry, let me start with you because I'd like to hear about trust in the after-school program, which, you know, where you already have buy-in, you already have agency, right? One of my favorite things um, across any new program that brings a group of youth together who have never met each other before is to compare how they are in the first session to the last. They almost inevitably look the same. In the beginning, they're quiet, they're shy, they're tentative. And part of what we want to do with them is use things like icebreakers where we ask them to take some risks. Maybe it's through playing a game. Maybe it's something performative. Maybe everyone has to do something a little bit embarrassing when they introduce their name. And as they see that nobody laughs at them and they can have fun with each other, that trust begins to build. And then by the last session, you just can't shut them up. They are, they're, they're upset that they're not going to be with each other anymore when the, when the program is over. They've built such a connection with each other. Sometimes they use words like families or most often at least friends. And by being able to build an experience where they, you can give them small scaffolded steps to take risks and expose themselves with each other and let them see they can be safe, they can build that trust with each other. But with us as the adults with them, part of what we need to do, I found, is that we need to take risks with them and show them when we're making decisions. Maybe uh, you and I, Anne, are doing a program together and suddenly we need to change what we were going to do. Well, we can go to the back of the room and whisper with each other or one of us can fumble along or we can expose to everyone and go, you know what, something different has happened than we expected. Anne and I are going to talk in front of you all now as we figure it out. We can expose our processes, let them see how it works and expose how we do what we do with them. And I find that helps to build trust as well because I see that we're not infallible. We're willing to take risks and, and make ourselves um, uh, bring them into the process. And that helps to build that kind of trust relationship where we're building the program together. Mm, I'm hearing the word, just bookmarking, I'm hearing the word transparency. That's interesting. Um, does anybody want to jump in and tell us how you build trust in your space? Well, I'll jump in. I mean, I think one thing, it's interesting to, th to sort of think about all of the different levels of trust, and we've named a few today, whether it's social-emotional trust or trust in the digital space or analog trust. Trust is trust is trust, and I think it's really about engaging with people and engagement and how to create the conditions where people feel safe. So whether we call that transparency in behaviors or programs or with the tools, it's allowing um, the, the people that are participating, you know, trust and safety, I think, need to go together. Um, and then in terms of the programmatic level and with youth and families, I think it's really about meeting them where they are. So whether it's through an icebreaker or through scaffolding um, some learning through play or being a little bit goofy, it's wh wherever that starting point is and not jumping into the theories or the fears about the sort of why nots or what are the consequences, but really starting at the programmatic level where the youth are, where the educators are, where the parents are, where the families are, and working from there. And, you know, just in, in interpersonal relationships where you, you know, if you can meet people where they are and build from there, you're starting from a foundation of trust as opposed to trying to harness trust out of the ether. And so I think whatever that starting point is, it's really um, meeting people where they are. Thank you. Doug, do you have anything to say about how to build trust? Yeah, 
so I was just thinking when when Kathy said there about trust is trust is trust. I think that's probably right when it comes to um, human relationships. I think you know the the way in which we build it is similar. But if we're talking about trusting, say, an organization that we heard about before when Carl was talking about Facebook, I think the level of trust that we talk about there is a different. It's it's a, it's qualitatively different from the type of trust that we have when we're dealing with humans because we're not dealing with the humans in that organization often. We're dealing with almost like their brand and their and their persona, which they choose to portray to the world. So it's almost, and this is the reason why brands will align themselves with things that people like. Sex sells, for example. The World Cup has partners, all that kind of stuff. You like this thing, then you'll like like this cell. And through that, we're kind of learning to, to trust them. as a, but When it comes to human beings, you know, like I said before, it's about kind of identity and, and that kind of stuff. And, and what we don't see with brands and organizations is the stuff behind that, that facade, all of that stuff behind it. I think that's, that's possibly worth pulling out. And I, I would agree entirely, and I think it's where things like the Aspen Report that provides some, some protocols and recommendations on the standards for transparency, for data stewardship, for accountability become critical and really need to serve as a baseline in order to even um, curate organizations or platforms or tools or games that are in a trusted environment. So you don't have the benefit of the interpersonal trust that as a starting point when you're working either at an institutional level or in an online space. And so I think really creating a set of standards and protocols become essential. So what, what are the baseline conditions um, for trust, what what's absolutely necessary in order to have a an environment where everybody feels trusted and is trusting others? What's baseline? I I'm going to push back and say that I don't know that you can ever have an environment where everybody trusts it. Um, I think that's like sort of a utopian goal. Um, I know when we were working on the language for the CFP, um, instead of saying that these tools need to be about trust, we said we, they need to take into account the complex social considerations of trust because it is one of those things that has always existed um, that's taking on new shapes. I mean, I think that's what we heard in all the responses to the previous question. Um, there's issues of transparency. People don't know where their data is going. They don't know when they're speaking to a human or a machine. Um, it makes me sort of think of the Turing test and, you know, who's on the other side. There's not really a way to know in these environments all the time. And I, I think that that changes things fundamentally in a way that it, yeah, it moves it towards literacies um, and an understanding of tools in a way that we haven't had to understand before. Like a book is an obvious thing. Um, a Facebook or a Twitter is not as obvious as a book, even if you have access to the code. So I'm hearing one little baseline condition in there, though, Jade, and that's transparency. I've heard several people speak to it. Um, maybe transparency of process, whether it's a personal process, what you're going through, what you're learning, or how you're learning it, or how we're doing this, or um, a kind of transparency of um, use of data. Um, I don't know. Can anybody speak to that? Any other baseline? So, 
Yeah, just, so, just really quickly, I think it's got a lot to do with um, tool use as well and, and the means of communication. So, for example, if you go to a different country, um, as I'm going to do soon, and you don't speak the language at all, um, and people are talking another language, you don't know sometimes whether to trust them or not because you've got no means of understanding their intentions, all that kind of stuff. And so when it comes to digital environments, you have to have some kind of digital literacies, web literacy, whatever, when it comes to being able to navigate the environment and because the communication we're having now, for example, is mediated by not only thousands of miles but a particular way of communicating which has affordances and drawbacks and all that kind of stuff. And, and I, would, I would offer in a community context, I think it's really around kind of creating a shared vision and I think it's the value of networks and what we see in the Hive Learning Network. It's by bringing um, a variety of perspectives to the table, so thought leaders with practitioners, with youth, and really creating um, buy-in at the vision level. What are we talking about? What are we trying to trust with one another and not plunking it down within a community? So, I, you know, I see in the programs and the partners that we're supporting um, the value of things like meetups or lunch and learns or affinity groups as ways to bring members of a, of a network together to trust and to care about what those opinions are. So. Um, I think it is different on the online space, but when you think about cities as a context, how do you bring uh, learning scientists together with roboticists, with educators, with youth to um, drive a learning experience? And I think part of that is designing it together. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I love the idea of that collaborative development um, towards a specific goal. I think that's one of the things. So transparency and collaboration. I guess the other thing that I would add in is the idea of um, mutual understanding because I think transparency isn't enough. So it's it's a kind of an essential piece, but it's really not enough to help um, fully and flesh out the idea of trust. Um, so as long as you're talking about there is understanding as to why specific information is required or why you're going to be connected with um, different groups of people uh, and there's some rationale behind that, even if that's not rationale that you entirely agree with, at least you have an understanding. So it's transparency with the kind of caveat of there's an, ex an explanation of, as to why that's been happening or will be happening in the future. So let's look at the flip side of this. Has anybody ever lost trust in a space or a program? And what have you done about that? How do you get it back? In the late 90s when I worked at WebLab, one of the things that we were interested in is how can you get people who are complete strangers online to talk with each other about explicitly hot button issues? Uh, how do we put uh, the things that we know divide us um, from our opinions uh, in the middle of a civic space and create a, an environment where people who don't know each other can connect with each other in a respectful way. And so when it didn't work, when there wasn't trust, people would leave. Right? That's essentially what it looks like. Um, someone can act badly, break that trust of the group, um, and then if that behavior isn't stopped and the group doesn't do anything about it, or if the authorities don't do anything about it, then people will leave. And so one of the things that was intriguing at the time was exploring the idea of how can you break this kind of uh, unlimited number of people in a dialogue down into small groups and see what happens when the dynamics are small enough that uh, actually if you don't speak your voice is heard because everyone can make a difference when it's a small enough number that everyone can track each other. And all of those groups that we found, we called it small group dialogue at the time, 
all those were effective because at the beginning of every single conversation, we always started by establishing what the cultural expectations were of how people would treat each other. And people were asked to agree to it or not. And we said, if you don't agree, don't come. And by simply establishing and articulating what the cultural values were and asking people to agree to it, um, enabled everyone, empowered them to police themselves. Not all the time, but most of the time. So that there was a common agreement about how we should treat each other. And if people broke that trust about how people were supposed to be treated, they knew it was against the norm. They didn't know it was just them. So for example, if we don't establish what the norms are and people don't treat me the way I expect or don't treat each other, I can assume that's just me and I don't want to impose my values on the group and I'm going to leave. But if we've already established as a group what that bar was that we all want to reach, we can now say, okay, this isn't just about me, this is for all of us. We want to do it together. So being able to recognize that we come from different cultural expectations and backgrounds makes a difference. So for example, when we start doing educational programs in Minecraft, where many youth are used to doing very aggressive things in Minecraft, um, being in an environment where it's okay to destroy each other's properties, it's okay to attack each other, they've agreed to do that, that might not necessarily play in an after-school setting where we're supposed to be collaboratively working together to build something. So again, starting by saying, what are we expecting each other to do in this environment? Let's understand that we have different understandings and cultural expectations about what behavior is okay, but now let's agree together to follow these when we're together in this space. So I would love to jump in and ask Jade, since she said she, uh, she actually has already practiced this within her environment about um, essentially trolling people and removing levels of trust, what the response is. To, um, to you as a teacher, essentially, at a certain point, like, and, and what, what your expected outcome is, and, and whether or not they're going to translate that into additional places in their lives. Um, so I have an example. This is actually one of my most read blog posts um, called Experiments in Trolling, um, where um, at a certain point in the semester that is high tension, um, I open up an etherpad. Um, people aren't familiar with it. It's like this anonymous group document creating program. Um, it's on a screen behind me and I have a laptop in front of me so I can see what's happening. Um, they don't know that I'm necessarily looking at it um, and the students start typing in it. Eventually they realize that they're anonymous and they're stressed out and they start saying things that might or might not be appropriate. Um, I respond to those comments. Um, but it's one of the ways that I reestablish trust at the moment when the classroom space is becoming that stressful environment, which is something that I don't want to happen in my classroom spaces. Um, since I'm teaching media and popular culture to a diverse group of students, I don't want anybody to feel like they don't have a voice. Um, so giving this anonymous digital tool to them um, that they can put behind me and say awful things about me, which they have done at times, um, it, re it reconfigures the power dynamics which is something a lot of digital spaces don't allow us to do. To do The tools that we have right now don't allow us to have a voice or a say in what's happening in the environments we're using. Um, and I've found that just giving them a space to speak up without my ability to interfere, obviously, is really freeing for them. Like, I can't tell you how many um, fake jades end up in the room at the same time. Um, but it becomes sort of comedic at a certain point. Um, and it almost always devolves when you're in those anonymous environments. But it's fascinating, Jade. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I said it devolves in a good way. Um, and it becomes a really good point of conversation for teaching about web literacies. Um, 
the way that it translates is when they start doing these tools, like a student came to me a while after we had done this and said, you're right, Most more often than not, these anonymous spaces turn into the places where people will just destroy things. Um, a person had been working on a group paper in a Google document, and because everybody was logging in anonymously, somebody deleted the whole paper. Um, and he was freaking out, but it made this student think about the role of anonymity in web environments in a way that he hadn't before. Um, so for me, that was a really good, like, yay, it worked. Um, and it's something that the students come back to as, like, you remember that time when this happened and Jade was trolled. So it's not just me trolling them. I give them the opportunity to give it back at some point. So they're gaining literacy, and but also in the process, they're becoming parties to the trust building, yep. aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And I never make anybody disclose what handle they're using. Um, there was approximately one time when something absolutely inappropriate was said, um, and it became a moment of learning because it is a media and popular culture class. It was like, what would you do if I were a male teacher? Would you have said this? Um, but it, it creates a new level of comfort that I think that students don't often feel in classrooms. And I know with the Facebook study that has been brought up, users don't feel in these virtual environments that we use. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about with this is um, for the people who work primarily on the ground, um, so Barry and Kathy, um, you've been talking a lot about the importance of the face-to-face -face part. I'm wondering how much digital interaction happens and if the dynamics in those spaces are different. Yeah, maybe I'll share uh, a great example of sort of the, the hybrid between the face-to-face -face interpersonal relationship and um, the effective use of digital tools. Because I think when we talk about this, we can't uh, separate digital literacy and connected learning in that in order for either one to be effective you really need to hold those two together. Um, so in Pittsburgh we run a program called the Remake Learning Digital Literacy Core, like an Army Corps, and what we've done there is to meet youth where they are. So these are deployments in out-of-school settings. So we've currently are in um, uh, 24 sites around the city, so things at, from church basements to highly organized YMCA's, um, boys and girls clubs, etc. And then we train a set of core members or mentors to in free and openly available software. So we started working um, with um, Thimble, a Mozilla tool, with Hummingbird, which is a robotics tool from Carnegie Mellon, and Scratch from MIT. So these are ones that we believe have good learning outcomes associated with them, but they are delivered with trained and trusted core members. So it's, it's giving the core members the tools and the digital literacies that they need to meet the youth where they are in these out-of-school settings. Um, and developing an interpersonal relationship. So for it's kind of bringing together the digital literacies that young people need and the face-to-face -face mentor relationship and the socio-emotional uh, development that really provide for the solid learning experiences. And your question takes me back actually to 2006. 2006 is when um, Teen Second Life launched. I don't know if People who remember Second Life, but uh, the big virtual world Second Life uh, decided to create a teen-only space back in 2006. It would be kind of like a Facebook made it Facebook Kids and made a separate uh, uh, space just for young people to use Facebook. And so this was an environment where youth 
owned all the land, all the virtual land. They owned all the intellectual property rights around everything they were creating. They they ran the stores. They sold each other's work. It was a remarkable place where there was this youth economy, essentially. And then suddenly, we had the ability as an adult organization, I worked at Global Kids at the time, to own our own island. And we were the first adult-owned island in the teen space. Uh, and in many ways, it was a metaphor for what it means for us as educators trying to go into youth's play spaces and try to engage them in learning. And we ran some programs there. Uh, we couldn't leave the island. We were locked to it, but the youth could come onto our island. And one of the young people early on um, left some graffiti on the island. And in Second Life, like in Minecraft now, making graffiti means building stuff. So we built this giant, you know, 20 foot high sign uh, graffiti that said, um, everyone from GK leaves Second Life, except Barry. That was the entire graffiti. <laughs> Uh, and, and it was wonderful because not only did he have an opportunity to express himself, which we appreciated, uh, but he was making a distinction. And naming me was simply to say I was the one he built the relationship with. And the trust was built between he and I in that space um, because I let him be difficult. I let him talk about problems he was having. I listened to his concerns about what it meant for adults to be there. And that's what him and many of the young people in that space needed to do. They needed an opportunity to voice their concerns about how they thought the authority figures should be interacting with them in their lives and what was youth space and what was adult space and where could the two overlap. The rules are being challenged for him and we let him talk about that. And This young person um, who is now working at Google, I understand, this summer, um, then you know became one of the biggest de defenders of the space and he, he appreciated and valued what that was about. And so for me that was a story about what it meant to build those trust relationships one-on-one -on -one and how important that is when we as adults are trying to work with youth in informal learning environments that are often online and often overlapping our workspaces with their play spaces and that we need to be able to give them opportunities to let them explore what why that can be challenging um, to ask them to, again, I use Minecraft as an example, move outside of some of the more, um, let's say the less educational aspects of Minecraft and try and shift it towards the educational potential and pull that out. Uh, I'm not critiquing what any young person is currently doing in Minecraft per se, but saying that what, the way we want to engage them when they use Minecraft might not align with how they choose to use it. So again, looking at Second Life back in 2006 or looking at Minecraft now in 2014, we're all, all often trying to look at the digital media that youth are consuming and often with places like Minecraft creating or like in YouTube showing things that they're producing and trying to figure out how to help them um, align with our own educational goals. And to do that, we have to build trust with them that we can be someone who understands their power to create, their power to have voice, that we want to respect that, but that at the same time, we have expertise and knowledge about how they can be more effective in doing that and do it in more, more pro-social and pers personally beneficial ways. And that means listening to some crazy talk sometimes that yeah. looks like 20-foot tall graffiti. Absolutely. And I think um, in terms of the competition, which I'm going to again come back to, um, that's one of the really big challenges that we have in building trust in connected learning environments is that we build these tools, we think we know what they're for, we think we understand them, and then we set them free. And the thing that comes back isn't always what we intended. Um, but a lot of times that ends up being a lot better. Yeah, that's reminding me, Jay, that part of what I always try to do as an educator who is trying to work with young people, and while the young people are not getting younger every year, I for some reason keep getting older. And so um, I, I have uh, uh, nephews, nieces and nephews who are teens, 
I read in Wired that there was this new tool they were using called Kick. It was one of the ways that they, as young people, are moving. They move beyond email. They're moving beyond even just text messaging, and they're using their own tools to have um, safer ways for them to talk with each other. So I had a family reunion this weekend, and while the adults were sitting and chatting with each other at the table, I noticed they were kind of quiet with their phone. So I created a, a, a group kick, I don't even know the right words for it, and just started talking with them. And we ended up talking about some rather deep things. Um, one, of their, one, of their, uh, one of their dogs had just died, and we hadn't been talking about that, but that was on their mind. And it came out there, and we played with each other. Uh, and it's, it's important for us to put ourselves as adults into their spaces. Um, yeah. But look to them to help them teach us about how they use it, why they use it. And in fact, during this entire webinar, I went back into that space with them um, and been asking them questions about trust and what it means for them to see if there's anything we can learn and bring back into this space. But being mm -hmm. able to learn from them, go into their spaces, um, uh, not presume we know what's going on and take some risks to embarrass ourselves, that's crucial for building trust and also building a deep understanding of what these tools mean for them and how we can engage them in their places. No. I would just add to, to that last uh, point that Barry was making, which is, um, and to your question of how do you lose trust, and I think it's when you don't put the learner at the center. So when you run a program that's not learner-centered, you, you lose their trust because you don't have their buy-in. You haven't captured their imagination, and you're not meeting them where they are. And so part of, of losing trust is... If, if, if a program, an organization, a tool, an idea, a tactic is not really learner-centered. then and maybe, you, maybe lose, you've never gained it. Part of losing trust may be in not trusting them. One of the things that I really hear Barry saying is, and, and this is a real deficit in our society, you know, a, a deficit in trusting our young people, especially where digital media are concerned. And I just, I wonder, do you, do you all feel that that's kind of a, is that a basic in your experience, trusting them to a degree? Yeah, and I, yeah, I think it is. And I, th I think kids especially realize when they're not the real audience who you're talking to. And what I mean by that is that everyone has metrics, whether you're a teacher, an after-school organization, a website, whatever. You have metrics which you live or die by because of funders, because of um, bosses or whatever. Um, and I felt this especially when I was a teacher, you know, like using, treating kids as a, as a means rather than an end sometimes. Like this is my way of going through threshold, getting more pay, meeting my targets for this year. And I think kids are especially good at seeing through that, especially teenagers are very good at seeing through that when you're doing things, not necessarily for their benefit, but you're doing it, you know, like Kathy says, you're doing it, you know, for, for some other kind of spurious means. And, and it's, it's difficult because you have to wrestle with it as a, as a professional, as an adult, as, a, as someone who's employed. You have to wrestle with the fact that you have to um, deal with the young people you've got in front of you or just any kind of learner, and especially in a, in a digital environment, um, and, and kind of speak to them and speak to the kind of things that you're being measured on as well at the same time. So I think there's lots to do with audiences. Yes. Um, I also have a hand up for this one. Um, thank you so much, Barry. I think that um, using the tools that they're using and making those tools valid is so important. Um, since I'm teaching the almost adult kids um, who have grown up digital now, I mean, they're the digital natives, um, if you want to call them that, um, they don't have a lot of the skills that they think they should have just because it's been reinforced. And I remember one time in a classroom, a student asked me if I thought they were stupid 
because they didn't know how to read a map. And my heart broke a little bit, but I asked yeah. him, when have you ever used a map? And he said he'd never used a map. I was like, what do you use to travel around? I use my phone. I use my GPS. I asked the classroom if anybody had used a map. Um, we had one older student who had used a map and one other student who was forced to use a map when all of her technology failed during a road trip. Um, but I told him he's not stupid because he doesn't know how to use a map. He just has a different literacy because his tools are completely different. Um, there would be no reason for him to know how to use an atlas. He's, I, my grandmother is great with an atlas. I can't use an atlas the way my, my grandmother does. Um, but we see these shifts, and more often than not, we don't reinforce them in the right way. So yay, I'm so glad that you went on kick with your family, because that doesn't happen enough. And I love this question of reframing this to think about where do we and where don't we trust the youth we're working with. I remember a public school I was in, and it wasn't too long ago, unfortunately, where they had disabled all the right clicks on the mouse. Because they didn't trust whatever they thought the youth were doing. Maybe they were changing the images in the background. And I thought, that's like taking letters off the keyboard. They didn't trust the youth. And I often run into people who don't want to give youth access to the technology because they think they're going to break it or not know how to use it properly. Part of the way I think about my work is that it's in a youth media context. We're working with young people to not only develop media literacies and digital literacies about media, but they learn it through producing things. And we inherently have to trust young people to have a voice, have the ability to use the tools, and be able to produce something with it. And now that I'm working in a museum context, I had the privilege last year of working with a group of high school students who we trusted enough to give them access to content for an exhibit that hadn't opened yet about pterosaurs. We gave them all the original art. We gave them the copy that was going to be on all the signage. And we said, work with us to make a game. And now we have a game, a card from it, pterosaurs, the card game. And they were able to work with us and produce something fantastic because we trusted them not only to respect the material and have a knowledge of game design, but we trusted them to be able to be able to take it seriously enough to um, learn new skills with us, apply it with new information they didn't have access to before, and care enough to, to make something that can now be actually sold in the store and available for, for free online from the website. And so that kind of trust in the abilities of young people to do um, to reach high bars. That means we have to set those bars. I think is really crucial for what it means to have you take on an identity as learners, to want to be associated with organizations that make them uh, uh, feel like they can take on new identities and see themselves in new ways, because we as institutions set those bars for them and say, we think you can reach this place, but not on your own. We're going to help you by working with you to help you to get there by working with your peers and give you something that you can do to show others how you've been able to um, reach that bar and be really proud of that and see others engage with it. And that's where I think the values of, of youth media programs um, both in person and how we use digital tools and can do that online as well and, and leverage the power of digital tools to scale that work and give them wider audiences. I'm just going to break in here because we're getting close to the top of the hour and I'd love to give everybody a chance and this time we'll go from right to left on my screen anyway <laughs> um, since Barry just spoke. Um, just for final thoughts. Um, try to keep it sort of brief, but we, we do have a good five minutes before I need to wrap it up. So Jade, could you, do you have a final thought on, on this subject of what trusted environments look like? Um, I, in fact, do not have a final thought on that. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why we, have, <laughs> why we have, 
the final thought is that this is why we have the trust challenge as the hashtag and why we're starting this conversation. Um, I don't know that anybody knows what these tools look like, how we enact transparency um, and understanding and collaboration in these environments in a meaningful way that's trustworthy. Um, so we have this competition going to try to figure that out because it's not something that we've been talking about as loudly as we've been talking about some other digital literacies. Um, so yeah, um, my final thought is go look at the competition information. There's $1.2 million available um, in grants. Um, and hopefully somebody other than me can come up with an amazing tool to use to help people understand trust online. Thanks. Doug? Um, yeah, I don't think we've um, talked about authenticity. I mean, this conversation has gone on for a long time, but I don't think we've talked about authenticity, which seems to be something which is underlying a lot of what Bowie's been saying, Kathy and Carla and Jade. Um, so, you know, letting go of the reins and, um, again, organizational effectiveness kind of thrives off trust, I think. So um, just think about how we can engender that within our colleagues um, and every relationship we have um, internal and external to our organization. Thank you. Kathy? I think I would um, really, to not look at trust as, a, as some kind of alien thing that we're trying to put into it. Trust is a very basic human nature. It should be a part of interpersonal, it should be a part of digital literacies, it should be a part of learning environments, and there's great ways to share. So I think transparency and openness, sharing of practice um, are great ways to sort of validate experiences and to begin to build trust. Again, um, would echo loudly Doug's comment around authenticity and sort of embedded experiences, ones that are meeting youth where they are, that are working with um, in trusted environments with, uh, with tools that also support that. So the landscape is fluid, it is changing, but it is a concept, a trust, it's a sort of, it's, it's a human right to, and a human nature to, to trust uh, one another, at least the desire to do so. So I think um, it is an ongoing conversation and the tools to do so will need to change as the literacies change. So it's not like we're going to nail trust and we're going to have that figured out and then we're just going to put it into everything. We're going to have to continue to figure out how to continue to trust in changing environments. Thank you. Carla? So this has been an amazing wide-ranging conversation. I guess I have <laughs> lots of thoughts that are still, um, and, and totally agree with Jade, is like this is a open-ended question that I think we're for ourselves too. Um, I guess there's a few things. Your, your question a little earlier about what is kind of the baseline requirements and I kind of come away with the concept of personal agency embedded and kind of embedded within that. Um, expectations, definitely what Barry was talking about is setting expectations for certain levels of interactions um, and then also the transparency. Um, and then I also refer back to B.J. Fogg has this really interesting approach to the concept of credibility. And for me, trust is actually a bunch of little things that kind of constitute, that are kind of build up to the concept of trust. And those include like validity, credibility, reliability. Um, and B.J. Fogg's kind of four different levels of credibility, I think, play a significant role here. And those are presumed, surface, um, reputed, and earned. And I think those are all really kind of different ways of looking at the idea of trust as a whole. And, um, and there are lots of kind of related answers and questions to all of those different facets of that. Thank you. And finally, Barry, your final thought. Sure. Well, I want to go back to one of the 
uh, nephews and nieces I mentioned earlier. One of the first messages that I got back from Rachel when I introduced the topic, what she wrote me back was, I asked her how she you know thinks about all this stuff, and what she said was, you create your own environment. You create your own environment. And what that told me was two things. On one hand, it made me feel good. It told me that she feels that she has agency and is empowered to shape how she presents herself and interacts uh, in, in this digital, new digital world. New digital world for us, but, but the world that she's grown up with. On the other hand, I don't think we create our environment in the sense that we don't choose the systems we're in. We choose how we interact with them. And for her to be able to successfully interact with her environment and her digital systems, she needs a certain set of digital literacies that I think we're all familiar with. And I don't know that she's in an environment necessarily where she's learning what it means to interact with her environment in a way um, that will give her what she needs. Um, so on one hand, she feels a sense of empowerment and agency. On the other hand, I don't know what her sources are for learning the literacies that are required for her to do it successfully. Thank you, Barry. Thank you all so much for a really great conversation. Um, and I, I want to tell our audience that we'll have a full video recording of this webinar available for you immediately on connectedlearning.tv with other curated content on the way, which you'll be able to share with your network. So this wraps up the second, sorry, not seminar, webinar of this month-long series, but that doesn't mean the conversation has to just stop here. We encourage everyone to keep the energy going by using the Twitter hashtag DMLTrust and by getting involved in the ongoing conversations within the Connected Learning Google Plus community. So mark your calendars for next Tuesday, same time, July 22 at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern for the third webinar in this series um, as we explore social-emotional literacies and digital citizenship best practices. And last but not least, we encourage you to check out the recent Learner at the Center of a Networked World the report of the Aspen Task Force. I'm biased. I was a member of that task force, and I really, really um, am proud of the report that we produce. So you can find a link on this webinar's archive page at connectedlearning.tv. So thank you all so much, and have a great week. <laughs>